Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast, brought to you from the 303 broadcast to the entire world. Hope you all are doing so great. If you came here looking for full-length poems, I'm sorry, you're in the wrong spot. But if you came here wanting to know what happened, how it happened, who was involved, and you want to get to know the people behind the poetry, well, you're in the right place. I want to give a huge thank you to our interview last week, Wheeler Light. And this week's interview is none other than Mercury Cafe team member Catherine Grace Scott. We've got a a lot to talk about, so we're just going to dive on into it. We're going to start with the Mercury Cafe. Denver. 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 Queen City of the Plains. Lift high our spirit. Sing well our praise. For in you we live and are loved. Your Mercury Cafe open mic started off with its usual complement of eight readers. We had Angela Nicole, Thad Simpson, Cloven, Eliza Beth, Stephanie Hemp, Derek Pufault, Polly Lippman, and Anissa. Uh, a couple of clips to share with you. The first one I'm going to do is from Angela Nicole. Angela has been a mainstay. She's been a longtime voice at the Mercury Cafe. And she's been coming with the new work recently. She's been writing a lot of new work in the last couple of months. Uh, This is an example of some of the new work, at least some work that I had not heard before. Let me play you a clip from Angela Nicole's newest poem. I'm going to be one of those moms teaching subjects you wish you could take in school, like AEP, women appreciation, unnecessary subjects like brown skin survival 101. A really great piece from Angela Nicole for a number of reasons. Uh, First and foremost is that it deals with a subject we don't hear a whole lot about at the Mercury Cafe. I know we've got a a number of mothers in the Mercury Cafe who read on a regular basis, but not a lot of them write poems about what it's like to be a mom for whatever reason. So Angela Nicole gets up there and starts talking about what it is, like the the reality of being a mom. And she starts off by saying, I don't don't want to be this kind of mom. I don't want to be this kind of mom. I do want to be this kind of mom. The kind of mom that teaches subjects like Women Appreciation 101. So it was really refreshing. It was a different voice that we're not used to hearing. And it was a great way to kick off your open mic. So, Angela Nicole doing it right, holding it down for everyone else. We got Polly Littman as your next clip. Uh, it's from his uh, most recent book that he's trying to push out there, The Jew Shit, A Menorah of Mazeltov Cocktails. A lot of Polly's writing, I've said before on this podcast, has gotten a lot more Jewish, a lot more personal. Not to say that his other writing before this wasn't personal, this is just a different depth, maybe a different exploration of what that means for Polly and where he's touched on his Jewish heritage before in poems. He's never fully gone this deep and fully embraced it like he has with this particular collection. So here's a clip from Polly's 
uh, open mic poem. We can see the fire coming because we have always burned white Anglo-Saxon Christians. The arsonists have now come for your house. I think a lot of what has facilitated Polly in exploring the subject matter is our current political climate. There are a surprising number of parallels between 1930s Germany and 2017 America. We've got a very nationalistic group of people who really want to return to how great America used to be, and from a Jewish perspective, that can lead to a lot of really bad things. So uh, Polly's out there hopefully trying to get people to listen and get people to remember what this can possibly lead to. And he does this with his newest collection. Check it out. And finally, the last clip I've got for you is from Anissa. Anissa is the daughter of one of the longtime supporters of the Mercury Cafe, uh, but she has never actually gotten up and read a poem uh, before this last Sunday. And she was super nervous. We we've all kind of been championing her from the sidelines. Everyone kind of knew she was a writer, but we were all kind of waiting for that day when she felt comfortable enough to get up on the open mic and really just kick that door down. And, and Sunday was that day. So here's a clip from Anissa's first ever poem that she has ever spoken into the existence of the Mercury Cafe. Um, yes, I'm dating another blue-eyed, blonde-haired white boy, but the last one destroyed me. He was like the first car ever made. Unstable, unreliable, dysfunctional, but revolutionary in my life. Now this was one of the very first lines to come out of that poem. And with a beginning like that, you can imagine how the rest of it went. It was... It was very indicative of someone who has been to the Mercury Cafe, who has listened to what's going on, who knows how to craft a metaphor and extend that metaphor. So I'm very excited to hear more about what's going on with Anissa in the future because we've already got a really good beginning. We're already starting off with some, some great material. So that was your open mic. We had two phenomenal features at the Mercury Cafe this last Sunday. Both from Salt Lake City, we had R.J. Walker and Jose Soto. They kicked it off with a duet that I have heard a number of times before, but never fails to uh, entertain, never fails to captivate. It's funny, it's serious, it's, it's got all the emotions, you can throw it in there. So here's a clip from the Utah Jesuses. We love the Jesus. We really do. He died for our sins. And he, he died, died for our foul shots. Why should we change it? It's freedom of speech. Listen, if we have to change the Jesuses, then we'd have to change the Redskins, the, Aztecs, the Braves, the Chiefs, the Indians, and even the goddamn Warriors. Plus, I already got all the merchandise and shit paid for. We already took it from them and called it ours. It would be too expensive to, to change, change this celebration, celebration now. now. It's just a name, really. What's the harm in a name? And this is one thing you always know you're going to get with any kind of feature involving RJ. You're going to get the funny, you're going to get the poignant, you're going to get the, so the social, you're going to get the satirical, and you're going to get the meaningful. Like, he's, he's phenomenal at putting in everything anyone could possibly ask for into a poem. And so when you got him and you got Jose Soto and they're able to do a group piece, that group piece is going to just destroy right out the gate. Um, after that, we had RJ following up with a solo piece of his, one that he said he had just finished really finalizing, and uh, these two actually came from the Rust Belt Regional Slam, which was in Minneapolis, Minnesota this year. And Rust Belt, from what I understand, although I've never personally been, I understand it's one of these uh, competitions where a lot of teams kind of get thrown together. You know, people who know each other, who have any kind of history, or maybe you don't know the other people on your team. You just get put into a team, and then let the chips fall where they may. And 
uh, RJ said that he unveiled this next piece for the first time at Rust Belt. So we were the second crowd to really get to see this poem, and it was it was mind blowing. It was amazing. It was a persona poem from a brick. Let me play you this clip. Brick had grandfather from Berlin. Brick know apartheid when brick see it. Brick not made to stop things. Brick made to start things. Brick heavy enough to crack riot shield. Heavy enough to shatter patrol car window. Toss brick into water. See how water rises with the weight of brick. And RJ does just a great job of setting the audience up for the expectation, but then completely just pulling the rug out from underneath them. At the beginning, we think it's going to be just a straight-out funny poem, because RJ's got those as well, but we think it's just going to be this poem from the brick's perspective about like what it's like to be a brick. And he starts off talking about how this brick went to Brick University and majored in bricking. And, and it was it was really funny. But then he transitions really seamlessly from this purely funny uh, persona into a more political stance. The, the clip that I played you was from when this brick realized it was going to be put into a wall that separates America from Mexico. And the brick understands what that means for itself. And the brick doesn't like being that component in that wall. And then the brick realizes it doesn't have to just be something that sits. Uh, a brick can be something that creates action. And it was it was so well done. The turn was was so... It was like this aha moment when the audience realized what was going on. And then it just opened up this entire like meaning for everyone. It was such a good piece. And followed that up with uh, Jose Soto with his Millennial Jesus piece. And this was really great because it... It goes on about, like, Millennial Jesus does all these hipster things that Millennials do. Millennial Jesus only listens to to hymns on vinyl. And Millennial Jesus heals the, the blind musician, but then tells me he likes his early work better. And uh, all these things. Again, a lot like RJ, where he sets up this expectation. But then, and here's the clip. And tonight, Millennial Jesus lives. And the officer does not fire. And Millennial Jesus does not die for his sins because Millennial Jesus knows it is not a sin to live in brown skin. He brings it back around. He lets you know that it's not all fun and games for Millennial Jesus. Oh no. Uh, Millennial Jesus is definitely of darker skin because Original Jesus is of darker skin than a lot of the times he is portrayed. Millennial Jesus uh, realizes that just be just breathing and being alive at the end of the day with dark skin is its own miracle. So it was it was a great piece, phenomenal way to to follow up uh, everything that was going on. After Millennial Jesus, we had R.J. get back up there with his other persona poem, "Said the Confederate Flag to the American Flag." This is one that I've heard before. It's def it's right now on Button Poetry, and if you've got the access, you've got the time, I definitely suggest going checking it out. Along with all of R.J.'s other work, he's got uh, Grandpa Millennial up there. He's got uh, his. His, uh, I believe it's Miley Cyrus-inspired sonnet that is just so fun. Um, so I've heard this poem before, but I was going back through just doing the editing for this show, just chopping up the actual sound file for this show. And I listened to this whole thing again, and just the audio isolated by itself is is haunting. And it is just so, so poignant, so heavy. Just the audio all by itself. 
Here's just a small little taste of what I'm talking about. You like to forget a lot of things, don't you? Remind everyone who ended slavery while stepping on my neck, but never once remind them who brought it here. Old man, you forget where the cotton we are made out of even came from. If there's one thing that RJ excels at, it is writing a persona poem and then fully embodying the persona with which he is writing from when he gives that performance on stage and this is no different this was just such a chilling such a heavy poem from start to finish there, there really wasn't any kind of break for the audience to smile or laugh or, or have a breather when that is usually the case with a lot of rj's other work no this one was just straight up i'm going to tell you how it is from start to finish and it was it was ridiculously good and then we're going to end it off with jose's final clip where he begins talking about the first time he had relations with a young person, he took his shirt off, and this is what happened. Nipples look like milk duds. Yes, that was what was going on. And Jose goes on to uh, give us a whole body empowerment, body positivity piece. So it does not matter that I have two fucked up almonds on my chest. I will always remember that I love, like Willy Wonka, approved chocolate filled with Midas Touch candy. Weird and oblong, but on the inside, I'm golden. And yeah, that's going to wrap it up. There were some other poems on there, but uh, those are the ones that uh, I isolated because I think those will give you a pretty good idea of what this feature set was like. But you know, the only way to really experience it is to be at the Mercury Cafe on a Sunday night. So you should try going down there. If you missed it, it's it's like you just heard, only multiplied by infinity. Yes. Because one thing you didn't hear is RJ wrote an entire chapbook of persona poems from the point of view of Pokemon trainers and gym masters of every level and of every team. And he read a handful of these poems. He read, I think, three or four of these poems just at the request of the audience. He's like, okay, someone tossed me out a, a trainer class. Someone tossed me out a, a gym leader. And then someone would, and he goes to the, the poem, and he reads it. And if you weren't there at the Mercury Cafe, that's one thing you missed, a.k.a. get your life. So <laughs> that was your feature set. We followed that up with... An amazing, amazing slam. This this is something that I said from the stage. This is less a slam at the Mercury Cafe. This is more like a final stage in an indie competition. Let me just read you some of these names. In the first round, we had Catherine Grace Scott, who you will hear from later on tonight, our phenomenal interview. We had Kevin Cantor, Connor Marvin, Wheeler Light, Megan Fally, Jill Carno. Jess Nieberg, and Johnny Osai. Those are some of the heavy, heavy hitters in the Denver scene. And, oh, by the way, yeah, you heard me right. Kevin Cantor has come back. At least he was on Sunday. Who knows uh, where the winds will scatter Kevin from here on forward. But at least for last Sunday, we were lucky to have their presence and, and grace us with their poems. Uh, we're going to break down this first round. There's a lot of clips to talk about. First and foremost, from our feature, Catherine Grace, this is her Ode to Rush, her Ode to 2112. And if you're a fan of 80s prog rock and concept albums and you're wondering to yourself, is she really doing what I think she's doing? <laughs> Fuck yes I am! Big time! I wrote a poem about Rush! 
This goes back to something I've said before about Catherine Grace, and I'll keep on saying it. It is an asset to not take yourself so seriously, especially in the current climate of slam. It's, it's very easy to get bogged down and caught up in all of the serious and all the urgent, but it, even in those times, it's, it's actually more important not to lose sight of the silly things, of the things that make us laugh and, and lift those things off our shoulders. And that is why I wanted to give you guys just a little taste of Catherine Grace doing her 2112 uh, Rush poem. And you're going to hear some more about that in the interview later on. The next clip I, I'm going to play for you is from Kevin Cantor, who started off in Denver, who was on a minor disturbance team when... They were just just a young person growing up in this uh, poetry community. And then Kevin went off, is in the process of conquering the entire world, and for a brief shining moment came back to Denver, and we've got to hear some poems we have not heard before. This is from their first round piece, uh, the Academy Award for the Non-Binary Actor. In which I get to star as myself, and nothing bleeds but my lipstick. Now I think it's important to note that Kevin is an actor by trade, that uh, they went to the University of Northern Colorado, majored in theater, and is trying to make a living at doing that. So this poem was not just an important piece about, about gender equality, about uh, gender queerness, about identification, about being non-binary. It was an important piece from the poet who wrote it. Because this is something that I'm sure Kevin would love to hear one day. Uh, the award for the non-binary actor goes to them. And it's going to be a great uh, watershed moment in Hollywood, in the American fabric of history, when that day happens. And so Kevin just gave us a little glimpse of what that might look like. The next clip I'm going to play you for is Megan Fally. This was a brand new piece from Megan. This was the skinny girl at fat camp. Let me play you a clip. Until my 100-pound housemate says that her clothes make her look obese, and I get it. I want to tear her apart. But that is me at my smallest. I know that every size of woman has been thrashed in the jaws of some ugly machine. I know the cruelty I've spoke unto others was first practiced in the mirror, was taught to me by a lineage of men. But with some reflection, I can tell you that in the after picture, I understand my privilege. Now, much like Angela Nicole earlier on, Megan Fowley has been on an absolute writing frenzy for these past couple of months. It seems like... Uh, Every week, we get at least one brand new poem from Megan Fally, and this was another brand new uh, poem from Megan, uh, The Skinny Girl at Fat Camp. It starts off very empowering, at least from the perspective of this particular audience member. The, the first, I want to say, 25 seconds of this poem are from the perspective of someone who's been to fat camp for five years in a row. And when you've done that, then you can say, fuck all this fat camp bullshit, and then just do what you want to do. But... Of course, Megan is, is really great at, at putting in a lot of density into her poems. Her poems are never what they actually seem like. There are many, many layers to it. And so we go from uh, that, that fuck all this fat camp, I'm going to do what I want to do, to privilege, to identity, to all of these other social themes that, uh, that Megan can throw into there. So it was a, a great piece, phenomenal poem from Megan Fowley. Next clip that we're going to play you from the first round is from Jill Carno, who was back for uh, being absent from a couple of weeks and had two brand new poems. I will say this here because I kind of pulled back the fourth wall 
when I was on stage, but Jill came up to me before the slam began, and she was like, okay, I've got two new poems. I want to read them both, but I'm looking at this slam list. I might not get to read them both. So which one of mine, which one of these new poems should I do? And of course, my answer to that is always, which one do you want to do? Which one will you feel really bummed out if you don't get to do tonight, then do that one. And so here's a clip from Jill Carno's first round piece. I remember the first fight savage enough to remind me of home, but was not home. Instead was his hand lunging at the back of another man's head, someone dancing with his property. Me, only property, violence, a love song. Now to me, this poem really only serves to underscore how underrated Jill thinks she is as a writer. Uh, she may not be on the the level of performance as, say, a Kevin Cantor or a Connor Marvin, and you know what? That's okay. But Jill, her writing, her writing is always, always very solid. So that's why I told you that story, the, the one before the clip about how Jill had these two new poems, but she's probably only going to get to read one, and which one should she read? Well, with work like that coming late in the first round, Jill made it into the second round, got to read the other poem that she wanted to. Before we get to there, I'm going to play you a clip from our last combatant in this first round, Johnny Osai. It was more like a magnanimous keister cough that rumbled my pants, turned my ass into a hovercraft, and fogged up the windows. Oh, yeah. I love you like that. Like the sweet, sweet release of toxins. Now this was a new clip that I had not heard before, so a theme in this first round is coming with the new work. Coming with the new stuff, at least the unfamiliar stuff. The stuff that uh, maybe the Mercury Cafe has not heard before. Uh, so here's Johnny Osai talking about a breakup poem and comparing it to bodily functions, specifically ones that have to do with farting or, or taking a dump. And at first, he doesn't let us know that this is about addiction. But that is the last line in the poem. He's like, dear addiction, fuck forever. I'm done. And then he walks off stage. And yeah, Johnny has been consistently very, very good at giving us a lot of, of setup and a lot of expectation for most of the poem. But then on that last line of that last couple of lines, he's he's been really good at hitting that that handbreaker, giving us that hard, hard turn. And this was another example of that from Johnny Osai in the first round. So from there, we go to the second round. We had Jill Carno, like I said, make it to the second round. We had Johnny Osai, Megan Fally, and Kevin Cantor. Kevin had the high score, so they went last in this case. Uh, the two clips I'm going to play for you are one from Megan that we have played before, but we haven't heard this one since Team Selection. This is the one where Megan addresses herself in the second person, uh, where all of it is you. Uh, that time you did this, that time you did that. But it becomes obvious as the poem goes on that Megan is talking about herself. And it's got just one of the most beautiful last images that that is around in poetry these days. I'll play you the clip. Drive through the night for love, no sleep till love. Now imagine it is yourself you are driving towards. Call that your new home. Come home, go home, be home. Such a terrific, empowering image. You know, drive towards love, drive towards yourself. It's, it's simple, but it's really, really effective, especially within the context that, that Megan established uh, already in this poem. So... 
Again, that's what you missed. One of the things if you did not check out the Mercury Cafe on a Sunday night. After that, we had Kevin Cantor doing an interesting performance of this poem. It's, this is nothing I've never seen before. So basically, Kevin read a poem stanza by stanza, but in between those stanzas would go off the microphone and give the audience an exposition about that last stanza. So they would read the poem proper on the microphone, and then after each stanza, they would get off microphone and address the audience directly and give an explication as to what the story was behind that last stanza, and then repeat the process uh, all over again. And it, it was so fascinating, and it was so different and unique. Here is a clip from uh, one of the, the poems on microphone, because unfortunately it's very hard to play you a clip from when Kevin got off the microphone, seeing as how it's off the microphone. So here's a clip from Kevin's second round poem. Three, another drama teacher says, your first instinct is boring, Kevin, which I take to mean if I would choose fight, I should instead choose to lipstick, to disco, to unhinge, to swallow whole, to fuck, to masturbate to something new. And if I would choose fight, I should instead choose to teleport, to camouflage, to evaporate, to rocket ship, to lightning bolt, to drop my voice and broaden my shoulders and wear straight cut blue jeans. Don't rely on your first choice, first choice, Kevin. What's the eighth choice? No one wants to watch a death that hasn't been choreographed. And with writing like that, you can only imagine how good those explication points were in between the the, pro, the poem proper. So after the second round, Megan Fally actually had the high score, and she decided to go last in the third round. Uh, so it was Kevin and Megan head-to-head -head in the last round. And Kevin went up and did a poem that I've heard a number of times before. So this is Letter from Cancer. This is... Kevin's persona poem from cancer to a body that it has inhabited. It's it's haunting. It's it's so powerful. Here's uh, a clip from that poem. I'll never understand how it is that you don't see it. How terribly beautiful you are. I mean, look in the mirror. I am in all the dark spots. The hollowed slopes in your eyes and beneath them. Your color is just so delicious. And Kevin did something that not many people do. They went from the first position in the final round against a, a very seasoned veteran, someone who's been doing this for a minute and knows what's going on, and Kevin ended up winning the night based off of the the that letter from cancer. So that was your Mercury Cafe open mic feature and slam. And now we've got your interview with Mercury Cafe team member Catherine Grace Scott. Our guest tonight is Mercury Cafe team member Catherine Grace. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm doing good, yeah. I'm so glad you could uh, sit down with me and have this interview. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be a good time. As a listener to the podcast, <laughs> it's nice to actually be on it. Oh my god. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm all flattered now. I'm out on YouTube. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on. <clears throat> well, if you've listened, then you know the first question I'm going to ask you. Mm -hmm. What brought you to Slam? It, there, there were poets that I liked and like obviously some of the famous people like Buddy Wakefield and Andrea Gibson. And so when one of my friends suggested that I come to the Merck, I started showing up regularly on Sunday nights, but not reading. It was probably like six months to a year before I ever read on an open mic, but I was like coming every couple weeks. Oh. And so, yeah, it took a while for me to like work up the courage to start reading. And 
I always thought that I would like never read in a slam. <laughs> like, and there were some other poets in the community who encouraged me to start slamming, and that kind of like gave me the courage to do that. Who were these poets? Uh, Mallory Everhart, and then I mean yourself and Piper were. Um, really encouraging, especially when I was starting out on the open mic, like making me feel welcome in the community. And like, I think it's really difficult for a lot of, not a lot of people, but like especially a lot of women to feel like their voice matters or like that they have something to say that people actually want to hear. And so it took me a little bit of time to believe in that. So was there like a flashpoint? Was there some kind of uh, event or or experience you had that caused you to make that leap, if if not from open mic to slam, but from audience to open mic? Yeah, uh, the first time I slammed, it's actually, it was like a big decision that I made. It was the three-year anniversary of my brother's death came on a slam night, mm-hmm. and I had written poems about, about that experience and about um, my brother's and the first night that I slammed was January 31st, 2016. And um, yeah, it was like a really important day to me. And so I thought that making that jump and being brave was a really important thing to do. And um, yeah, that's, that was the first time. Nice. <laughs> um, uh, what are your influences when you, when you sit down to write? Like what inspires you? I think that my voice is kind of all over the place Um, because I do, in your latest podcast, you're talking about how I don't take things too seriously. You you have that capacity, (laughs) and that's one thing I admire, especially in the the climate of today. It seems like there's a lot of really serious going on today and not a whole lot of levity. Like you... Uh, Wheeler can can be uh, yeah. light sometimes, but like you, you two are like the too few, <laughs> and everyone else is just so serious and like everything's urgent and yeah. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> it's really important to write poems about joy and whether they're serious matters um, about like love or family or friendship, or if it's just like silly things about like Comic Con or Rush or Draco Malfoy or whatever. Um, So I think that, like, that, I have, like, my silly, silly fun time poems, and then I have, like, the poems that I write that are, like, really heavily researched and are, like, very intense, and so I think that I have, like, two, like, stronger voices as far as, like, what I'm doing when I sit down to write, Um, because I would say half of my poems that I slam with, I, like, spent, like, hours researching before I even wrote a word. And then there's some that I just like sit down and I'm like, this will be a fun time. <laughs> you just knock them out. Yeah. Um, when you when you sit down to write, is it like you have a picture in your mind of what you want it to look like? Is it more just uh, like free form? I'm just gonna plug some things out, see what happens. Like, what take me through that process? Um, I think it depends like what the type of work is. I think that with my like heavily researched um, poems that I'm writing. I'll sit down with an idea of what I want it to look like, but as I'm writing, if that shifts, I allow that to happen. Um, Like my Babylon poem, when I initially wrote it, I wanted it to be both Babylon and the Virgin Mary as like a dialogue. Mm. And then I was sitting down and I was just like writing all this Babylon stuff and it was like... uh, It did feel like very channeled. Like I had like researched and then all of a sudden it was just like 
I probably did 10 hours of research and then I just like sat down and it all came out of me in like 10, 15 minutes. And by that I was like, oh, I can't, this is like 600 words. I can't add another perspective to this. And so like allowing that to happen. And I'm glad that I like gave it the freedom to like not stick to what my original concept was and then be shaped by the words and what was actually happening in the writing. It allowed the poem to be what it wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think you're going to follow up on this uh, Virgin Mary I think in the future? Maybe. I have all these ideas, and it's hard to um, get all the poems that I want to write written, especially with team stuff going on, because you like have to um, factor in where the teammates are and like all the group work that you're doing and memorization. And there's more of a time... Time is, like, more of a thing now. (laughs) Getting stuff done by nationals. And um, our coach is setting, like, a pretty tight, like, ship as far as when we have to have stuff written by. And and I appreciate that. I think all of us, like, need uh, timelines as far as, like, getting that stuff done. Or else it'll be like, oh, we have all these, like, group pieces we want to write. And, uh, oh, it's August 1st. What are we going to (laughs) do? Um, how has your experience on this year's team been so far? It's been great. I think that, um, I don't know if it's like not a secret that, I mean, my partner's on the team as well. And so we're, we're writing a group piece together. And so how that's like manifesting, like writing together versus like, um, being like a a support system when we're working on our own things. And so I think that we have had like little snafus as far as like writing a group piece of us like the direction that it's going and what we want it to do and so like that like couple bickering is the only thing that's been a problem everyone like everyone else has like really enjoyed like spending all this time together and writing together and yeah I don't have any complaints what are your goals for the team this year I just want to write a bunch of poems that we're really proud of. And I, it would be awesome if we did well. And I think that um, doing well in competition would be a great byproduct. But I, I think that like as a writer myself, when I'm like sitting down to write a poem, I'm not thinking like, oh, I'm going to write this like really weird persona piece about drinking like uh, about the horror of Babylon and I'm like drinking like saint's blood like I'm not thinking about whether it's going to slam well I'm like this is a fucking amazing poem and it's it's my poem I'm sorry I think it's great Um, but um, I think that creating work that we're proud of is like our main goal it's the, the objective of the team how do you define that how do you define work that you're proud of I think that if it turns out successful as far as the effect that we want it to have, like if we want to write a silly, silly fun time poem and it is, it has that effect on people and we're happy with it and we think it's funny, um, then it's a powerful piece for us. Or, um, and also doing things that are like kind of avant-garde and not just being like, this is what we want, um, It's like, oh, we have to make this, like, slam poem. It can be interesting and sort of outside of what, uh, outside of expectations of, like, what a group piece is going to look like. Um, So basing it more on, like, audience response or on, like, subverting expectation, both of those things? Yeah, I guess both. 
um, I don't know, I think about slam as it, slam poetry is like its own thing and then it's also like in some realms like performance art and it like finding the line between um, being a slam poet and being a performance artist who's like using slam as an avenue for that. And so I, that's what, I think persona pieces are interesting and like not a lot of people are doing it. Like Utah is like the biggest place that I've seen like persona pieces come out of and I think that those are really interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are your personal goals within the context of slam? I don't, I just like want to have a good time and I want to make art. And that's, I mean, that's really it. Like when I started writing poems, it's, I would like to reach people in a way that is beneficial and healing. Um, but yeah, I want to have a good time and I want to create something. And I think it's a good outlet um, for people um, to do something that they're proud of. I keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So nothing, nothing beyond that? You don't want to tour, publish? Um, well, I'm actually, my first poem is getting published. Where is that going to be? It's at, um, at the University of Denver. Okay. It's one of their, one of their visual and textual magazines. Um, one of my poems is being published in it, and so I'm going to go pick up all the copies that I can carry. Okay. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Um, you said earlier that, uh, female voices aren't always celebrated, aren't always, you know, recognized or thought of as urgent or important. Um, what do you think the the role of feminism is in slam in general and how do you try and interject um, your ideals of feminism into the poems you make? Um, I think that it's probably obvious that I in my work that I think that f like the role that feminism takes in slam poetry is really important for um, female writers and poets and that um, but I also, one thing, one topic that I, I'd like to explore further in my work is um, not just the idea of like the effects of to toxic masculinity, but also the effects of toxic femininity and like what that's doing to feminism. And so it's not, I think that there is a balance of both of that. And I think that empowering female voices is uh, a necessity for performers and writers but then also making sure that you're not giving voice to more hate by having like a, a toxic female perspective, like a way that's going to limit other women or other people of any gender expression. Uh, give an example of that. Go a little deeper, what are you talking about? I think that um, sometimes in feminist work, that there's this focus on um, womanhood that is exclusionary of people who don't subscribe to that. And that um, I had a good conversation with my coach about this because I was like writing a poem and they um, were uh, really challenging me on where the poem was going. And I, I think that it's important to, in that, in the effort to give womanhood a voice, how to do that without isolating um, non-binary persons and not just spewing like 
hate speech about men. It's like more about empowering women than it is um, trying to like limit any other person. And I think that like for me, um, that ability to find my voice is crucial in like my development as a human being and as a person, but I wouldn't want anyone else to feel like their voice didn't matter. Like I wouldn't, not that I'm like, yeah, straight, straight white men get a, get a bad rap in like in left speech and it's all like policing, um, like privilege politics and what that's doing to people. And I wouldn't want my poems to make any straight white men feel like their voice wasn't valid or people who identify as non-binary. I don't want them to see me read a poem about womanhood and think that they don't have a part in that story. And so I think that feminism is important, but I mean, if your feminism isn't intersectional, then it's like fucking bullshit, so. Feminism, to my understanding, just means like putting everyone on the same plane. Yeah. Regardless of race or gender or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, What do you think Slam's legacy will be? Like when it's when it's all said and done, and we can look on it in history books. What do you think the like the main takeaway of Slam is going to be? I think that there's gonna it's gonna be this like snapshot of this like when the effects of 45's presidency burns this shit to the ground. Um, <laughs> After uh, World War Three, <laughs> the ashes uh, smoldered itself out. Yeah. Um, I think that it's going to be this snapshot of these people who are trying to fight back. And if they're fighting back with anti-right-wing sentiments in poetry or in um, empowering um, not like minority uh, identities in poems, but also poems about joy, like we talked about, I think that that is going to be representative of the human experience. Like, you don't want slam to just be poems about trauma. It has to be representative of the human experience. And to do that, we have to, like, explore all facets of that. And I I really hope that that's what slam's legacy is, if it ever dies off as as a medium of artistic expression. I hope that which I, God, God, goddess, God forbid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I hope that that never happens. But if it does, I think that I want it to be like an accurate representation. Well, maybe not dies off, but uh, evolves. Maybe. Evolves, yes. Because because you can look at like poetry movements and and the different things they mean and represent. You got your modernist and your postmodernist. You got your beat movement. I mm. think slam is just another like chapter in that in that long story yeah that's what i'm writing my master's thesis on (laughs) (laughs) well i'm writing my master's thesis on sound poetry which is poetry that uses non-natural language and so it's um it does for words and syntax and language what uh abstract physical art does for that medium and so if if you look at like uh, a rothko painting the way that you feel when you look at it, it provides like an emotive and spiritual experience and it's it's using physical art to do that. And sound poetry is using um, sound 
and the distortion of language to do that, to like, in the performance of sound poetry, provide a spiritual or emotive experience in the listener or audience member. Give an example. Uh, well, uh, I have a poem about Emmy Hennings, um, and she was a sound poet, and uh, the sound poetry was probably uh, the biggest in the Dada movement, and that's uh, Zurich Dada, which is what Emmy was the founder of, is the probably the most important moment in sound poetry in the past 160 years um, since it's been evolving. And so like Hugo Ball's Caruana or Gaji Gary Bamba is like his most famous sound poem. And hers is like a poem called Morphin, which is like a distortion of the German word for morphine. Um, so, and it's about like, it uses natural language in a syntax outside of like the German expression to like inflect it with a second meaning. It's like the feeling of um, morphine use by this distortion of language. Sounds deconstructionist. Yeah. Uh, so there's your homework, anyone who's listening. <laughs> Go check out some Emmy Hemmings and, and morphine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if you're into like weird really weird poetry then that's like a good thing to do <laughs> what do you think academia has to learn from slam and what do you think slam can learn from academia I think that um, academia could learn from slam to take itself a little bit less seriously because I think that if you go to like an academic poetry reading and people like cough the the reader just like stares at whoever coughed or you make any kind of like movement it has to be like stark still and quiet and i've had that experience at conferences too like i've presented at a couple art history conferences and it's like the person presenting is the only sound in the room and it's like quiet otherwise and then i at the conference that i presented at last i was on a panel with somebody who was doing like a, uh, a presentation about gentrification and about the artist's role in gentrification and um, I was finding myself like snapping and I was like oh shit I can't do that <laughs> it's almost like almost a funeral type of atmosphere yeah where it's uh, it is not it's discouraged to react in any way to what's happening other than like thinking which happens internally. And I think a lot of slam, um, your, the expectations of the audience are, is that they're, they're um, responding to the things that are happening on stage. That's like a vital part of it. Like you're gonna get a better performance out of a poet if you're responding to the work that they do because they like feel that energy and the energy in the room is rising. And I mean, some poets can go on stage and it's like a vacuum and all the, like nobody's breathing, all the assholes are tight. Like no, like, <laughs> and there's like, uh, there's nothing happening in the audience. And then when a poet gets on that, like breathes that life back into the room, um, everyone just relax and it's like everyone exhales at the same time. And so that, like very visceral, visceral reaction is happening in the audience while poets are on stage, and I think that there's not the freedom to do that in academia. So that's what academia can learn from slam. What can slam learn from academia? Um, I think, and there have been poems that I've heard 
um, I would never call anyone out on the podcast, but there have been poems that I've heard that have um, had a negative attitude towards things that they didn't understand academically. And so if somebody write, writes a poem and says, like, this is bad because I don't understand it, it's, I mean, I think that slam is probably, like, more okay with academia than academia is with slam. But yeah, I, there have been poems. Uh, poem, there's a poem that I heard that was like about art. And it was like, this art is bad because I don't understand it. And I was in, in the audience like, I disagree respectfully. <laughs> like, so let me explain it. <laughs> maybe more research, more... I don't want to say open-mindedness. But maybe more of a... Uh, to to paraphrase Connor Marvin, maybe less of a like anti-intellectualism, maybe mm-hmm. more like opening oneself up to uh, the things that one does not understand, and instead of fearing those or turning away from them, using that as a learning opportunity. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I'm <clears throat> of the of the vein that I think that like I want to know all the things when I like there's a topic that I get excited about, I want to know everything that there is about that topic. And that's why I think so many of my poems are like so research heavy, is I get the idea and then I'm like, I have to know everything about this one topic before I can like effectively write this poem. And I think that some of my poems are like edutainment and uh, which is also like a form of media that I really enjoy. And because I like, I think that knowledge is power and schoolhouse rock and all those things. Um, and so giving, um, giving the audience the opportunity to learn when they come to a slam is really important. And like, I don't, what, in the hard truth, the one that you did about the, the poet who got on stage for like 10 minutes and was like reading, like he was saying like really interesting things but he wasn't respecting the rules of the open mic. And I think that like he had a lot to say about, like he had obviously done a lot of research, but he hadn't made that compelling. And I think he could have probably edited that a bunch. Oh, for like, sure. Going back and listening to it. For know? sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard it the once and I was just right. like clinking glasses because right. he like gave Jill the hand to like <laughs> stop her from like, walking him off stage which I which wasn't okay but also like he's a page poet and we don't want to discourage page poets from like coming and reading but then just like adhering to the rules right and and the rules are there not to silence you or limit you they're there to respect everyone else's time you know like especially we got a feature you know we don't we don't want to get too late on the slam because people got lives they got to get to oh yeah I totally agree yeah but that guy was just an ass. Yeah, like he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like anyone who like disrespects the host so much to like she tried to walk him off stage and he like put the hand out to her. That's not an appropriate thing to do to a person no. at all. And he was completely out of line. And I think that's why he left immediately after. Um, what are you looking forward to most as a member of this team in the summer? Just, like, spending time with, like, some of the baddest poet, like, baddest as in good poets in as the in city. <laughs> and, yeah, not, like, uh, we've got two amazing coaches, and then um, everyone on the team is amazing, and our alternate wheeler is amazing, and, like, 
I care about all of these people and I think that we all have like something to learn from each other and we like have different perspectives as team members and if you had told me that like two years ago when I first started coming to the Merc and I wasn't slamming and I was just like sitting in the audience and watching these like amazing performers and writers that I was gonna like be hanging out with like Ian and Piper and Polly in my living room writing poems together like I would have like been like that's crazy and I <laughs> I think that they are all like amazing writers and performers and I'm so grateful for the chance to work with them and then with Connor and Jess and Megan and Wheeler they all have like such amazing voices and different experiences in life and in their like quote unquote careers as poets. I love like, the, the air quotes. <laughs> careers. Whatever. <laughs> oh yes, there's lots of money in poetry. Oh yeah. For ten people. Total. Yeah. Like you gotta divvy it up amongst yourselves, but there it's there for uh-huh. sure. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny the poets, like the ten poets who are famous and who are working and don't have jobs outside of that. That they're like, like for slam poets, it's like, oh yeah, Neil Hilborn, like, who's <laughs> one of the ones. Yes, uh, he's one of the ten. But if you were talking to like anyone outside of the slam community and you used his name, like, some people would know it, a lot of people wouldn't. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine used to say that that uh, it's kind of like the the lawn bowling of. Of anything else, you know, I'm sure that like lawn bowling has its its famous like people, superstars yeah, that, that only <laughs> do that, and like the people in the know like are so super excited, but everyone else just doesn't know or doesn't care. Slam is is a lot like that as well. Yeah, yeah. and it like one thing that blows my mind. I don't know if this is off topic at all. It's it blows my mind. Like as somebody who was a patron of the Merc for so long before I started performing, that there are people who like are into like my work and that like there are people who like I'm like oh am I somebody's favorite that's crazy like <laughs> you did you see Wheeler just losing his mind no. when you did the the comic-con piece no he I was, <laughs> he was so he was glowing when you were doing that that's so great I wanted to well last week I wanted to do like an old shit night because <laughs> I just felt like I hadn't read them in like six months and so I thought that it would be fun to do the stuff that I like did when I was starting out. And I think that speaks to this this thing that I brought up earlier, this idea that like it's so super serious right now. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone is just bringing really like if it's not, you know, serious is not necessarily traumatic related, but serious can be just like the absence of funny. Like this is a very earnest thing and you need to know about it and, and so I'm going to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. So I think when when things get like that, you have an an edge if you get up there and just do something kind of silly or with a good time or you know, you don't take yourself so seriously and you're up there and you're like, yeah, Comic-Con. Nobody calls me a fake nerd girl here, you know? Like, yeah. It's magic. And I like that um, the audience is always on my side when I giggle in the middle of my pieces because I'm like, that was like silly and the fact that I'm doing this in front of you is so silly and like that people, they want, they want that, like, that change in tone and I think that if I don't take myself seriously, it gives them the freedom to also do that. Yeah, I think so. Last question. Yes. Same last question. Uh-huh. Uh, you're walking along the beach. Yes. Find a magic lamp on the beach. Rub it three times. Magic Genie pops out and says, you have one wish for Denver poetry. What is your one wish for Denver poetry? 
God, I wish that there was less drama in between poets. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't we all just exist? And I think that, I mean, some people are actively working to, um, to be a bridge in between some of these poets who, um, poets or people outside of the community who have beef with each other. And I think that that's really important. And I, I hope that I'm doing that for people as well. Like I, I've done my best to stay neutral, neutral, neutral and to talk to different parties and say that like that neutrality isn't siding. It's like, I think that everyone has a voice and I want to hear all of them. And um, how do you think we can get there? How do you think we can fulfill this wish? I think that everyone, I don't know if it's possible, if I'm being honest, as far as bridging those gaps. I think that like the way to do it is to make, to have everyone feel that they're heard and seen in all of these issues. And some people, despite whatever's happening, aren't going to allow that to happen for themselves or for others. And when people have these like very, I don't know, different objectives, it's not, you can't satisfy everyone in, in that. But I think that, yeah, I just like want to like love all the poets and be supportive and want them to keep writing. I don't want anyone to feel like their voice doesn't matter in life or in poetry. Like even people who like get up on the open mic and they suck all the air out of the room um, when they're reading. If it's like something that they need to say, I want them to feel that they have the freedom to do that. And the same with other uh, more established poets in the scene. I want everyone to feel like they have a voice on stage and off. Because the point is the people. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to lose anyone. No. <laughs> We've lost too many already. Yeah. yeah. Um, on a completely unrelated note, who are you most excited about for Comic-Con this year? Oh, man. I mean, there's, like, a Buffy. Uh, there's going to be all those, like, Emma Caulfield and Juliet Landau and James Marsters are going to be there. And I'm stoked about that. And then I think it's, like, awesome that the Weasley brothers <laughs> yes, I saw are going to be there. I was like, oh, I definitely want to go to whatever panel they're on. I feel like they are Fred and George in real life. <laughs> Like, no scripts were written, just, like, put a camera on these two and just... Uh-huh. just they were, them. like, be in character, but just hang out. <laughs> All right on. Felicia Day. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I saw her at the San Diego Comic-Con. She did a Geek and Sundry panel then, and it was, like, she's such a good speaker, and she's amazing. Yeah. Well, a huge thank you to our guest this week, Catherine Grace. Anything you want to plug or promote or push before I turn the recorder off? No, just come to Nationals. Come and volunteer. Definitely sign up to volunteer for nationals. Okay, you heard it there. It's a, a direct order from Catherine Grace. Another fantastic feature here in the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Uh, thank you once again. Huge, huge gratitude to Catherine Grace for donating her time, uh, sitting down with me and just being so giving and so honest. So thank you one more time to our interview this week, Catherine Grace. Um, you'll notice this week, I did not have a hard truth segment. That's because no one needed to hear any hard truths this week. So hooray! Good job, everyone, for not doing anything that we need to yell about. I, I love it when those weeks happen. Um, let's keep those going. 
Let's make that a norm. If if I could do away with the hard truth once and for all, I would happily do that. But if someone needs some talking to, if some, there's a, an incident out there, or, or someone needs maybe pointing out, then rest assured, we will bring the hard truth back. Uh, a couple of quick hits before we get out of here. Your feature at the Mercury Cafe on June 18th is going to be Joy Young out of Arizona. You definitely want to check that out. That is not this Sunday. It is the Sunday after. Uh, still, we are looking for volunteers for the National Poetry Slam. When it comes to Denver, you can volunteer by going to npsdenver.com and signing up there. And a huge thank you to Piper Mullins. He's like a lighthouse in the sky that's also a constellation or something. To Marina. And I'm going to open my own store selling... Uh, hermit crabs to children and to the audience at the mercury cafe audience remember way back when when i said fuck you i didn't mean that so that'll do it for us uh, for this week from the mile high poetry slam podcast make sure to tune in next week i've got some pretty big names coming at you in the following weeks for anyone who has been a fan of the history of denver poetry so make sure that you are tuned in and that you keep on checking the Blog Talk account, checking the Stitcher, checking the iTunes for what's about to come your way. Uh, and until then, always remember that the points are not the point, and that the poetry is not even the point. The point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next week.